1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Todorovic, joined by my co-host, Dr. Matthew Barton. Matt, how are you? Good morning. Everything okay? I'm well. Yes, it is nice and early this morning. Uh, how have you been? I'm
2: going to the uh, to my homeland
1: on oh, Wednesday. Yeah, really, Scotland. Wow, <laughs> That's not close. Scotland. It's close. Where? Well, the
2: southern uh, island of New Zealand, which is kind oh. of. Um, Scotland, in a way, because okay. I think they were. Um, uh, I've got to be careful how I word this. Yeah, uh, a lot of immigrants from Scotland went there in um, the early
1: days. Right, uh, is that where your family's from? My dad, your dad, so My your father. dad was born in New Zealand. New Zealand, but not yeah. you, not me. Okay, so it's not your homeland. Australia's your homeland. That's true. All right, so uh, but I'm going, going to. I'm, I'm
2: going to uh, Wanaka.
1: Where's that? North South.
2: I guess it's central Otago, which is about an hour out of Queenstown.
1: Cool. And uh, you've been to New Zealand before? A few times, yeah. You like it? I like it. Going skiing or is it a bit warm at the moment? No, it's probably too warm. Okay. Uh, Yeah, we're still in summer, I suppose, in the southern hemisphere. But they do have – well, in the mountains they do have snow pretty much all year round. But that's just capped at the top, right? I think so. I don't think you'd go down the slopes. You probably – yeah. But you you used to be a skier, right? Your
2: skis wouldn't be in good shape at the end of the run.
1: As you go down the dirt hill. Uh, You used to ski. I did. When was the last time you went skiing? Was it, I think it was
2: in Australia. Really? Threadbro. Threadbro. It drew my PhD. Victoria. Mm, New South uh, Wales. I
1: thought it was Victoria, but is it Canberra? Uh, Not Canberra, is it ACT? No, it's New South Wales. Oh, okay. Uh, Oh, so it's been, well, it's been a decade. Yeah. Wow, okay. Well, enjoy... I hope your family likes it. Taking both girls, well, all three, your wife. Three and girls, the, yeah. Two two daughters. One Correct. woman, two girls. Uh, cool. That'll be good. When do you leave? Wednesday. Wednesday. Two days' time. That's and it'll r- just be me by myself. Yeah, so you... Wow, so can I you, should be able to can do Can you hold the fort? Yeah, I'll be able to do a bunch by hold myself. Hold the fort
2: or hold the fort down, which, which is the term that you use?
1: Uh, I don't
2: use either. I just I just say look after the place.
1: So I will. Uh, I'll make sure I do as many podcasts as I can by myself.
2: You've got to feed the chickens and that's not a euphemism. Yeah,
1: no, it's not. Thank God for that. Uh, yeah, Matt's uh, so when giving you, me the task of yeah. feeding the chooks. I don't live at Matt's house. Everybody, by the way, uh, our studio is at Matt's house, uh, and it's located at forty-seven. <laughs> no, uh, so I'm going to come here, feed your chooks, take the eggs, take the eggs, enjoy the protein. That's right. Uh, do I have to water the garden? No. Anyway, no one cares about this. Let's jump onto the. Uh, we've got the a, We've had enough rain, oh, to that's the last month. Sure. All right, let's jump on, let's jump on. we uh, have
2: you been? I've heard, I've oh, heard yeah. there's a, um, there was... Are you going to
1: talk about my hypochondria again?
2: Uh, yeah, so this week, what is it, pneumonia? Uh,
1: no, I'm fine this week. My cough has diminished uh, since the last episode. Uh, I'm pretty good, but my daughter got pneumonia, so I don't know if I spoke about that last episode. No. She was a little bit under the weather. So Had do a- you think she
2: got the virus and then just secondaryed into yeah. pneumonia?
1: Yeah, so she got the cough and... You know, little bit of a temperature, so she maybe 38 degrees.
2: So she had the same virus as you?
1: Yeah, we, well, we had it at the same time, so I assume so, because my son had the cough a week earlier, so I assume we got it from the him. Uh, I got better, temperature went. Her temperature was never that high. Dropped down 38 degrees, and then it started to go back to normal, but it was like this low-grade temp. So it was between like 37 and 38 degrees Celsius, just fluctuating for like 10 days. And she just didn't seem right. She she's kept saying, Yeah, I feel fine, I'm normal, it's okay. But we just lay down and watch TV and she's got so much energy usually. So I took her to the docs, he had to listen to her chest, and he said, Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Take her for an x-ray. And you saw this consolidation in her middle right lobe. uh, and now she's on antibiotics and is way better and is doing a bit of physio to help that lung out. Fix the consolidation. Blown out, right. Yeah. Well, help reinflate it appropriately and get all the gunk out. So, yeah, that's my six-year-old. But she's good. Good to, good to that. hear that she's back and... But I'm okay. Thanks for asking, Matt. Um, <laughs> back's pretty good. <laughs> Cough's not bad. Probably. Anyway. Today, Matt, we are talking about... What are we talking about? Cardiac cycle. Now...
2: Why are we talking about this? Well...
1: If our uh, dear listeners think back to our long-form episodes, we had we did a series of cardiac episodes. Fo- did we? Yeah, man. We did heaps. Okay. We did maybe like three in a row, and we focused on heaps of things. So we fo- focused on a, an overview of the cardiovascular mm-hmm. system. I remember that. Spoke about blood pressure, cardiac output. We Was that sp- a... An own episode, I think, Yeah, I think Cardiac Apple was its own episode and so was blood pressure was its own episode and an overview of the cardiovascular system and the vessels. I think you already said that. Yeah, so, okay, cool. So the question might be what's different today? Well, today we are focusing on something that's super important, which is called the cardiac cycle, which is basically what happens within the heart within a single heartbeat, right? One heartbeat. So when you say
2: within the heart, what does that mean?
1: So what I mean there is what is happening electrically Mm -hmm. in a single heartbeat. I want to say electrically the conduction pathway, but also how we interpret the conduction pathway through an ECG and also what's happening mechanically in regards to what's moving, what's contracting, what's opening and closing and so forth. So it's basically everything associated with the heart in a single heartbeat. And what do we call that? The cardiac cycle, okay. which is the topic of today. So uh, w- there will so, be points that we may have touched upon here and there. But, I'm sure, yes. Definitely. But this is a staple for anyone interested in the cardiovascular system, and definitely for nursing and medical students. And to jump
2: ahead just quickly, which we will straight be- to the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there, Thanks
1: everybody for listening th- to. There the will address.
2: be a an image that we'll be somewhat referring to throughout, or explaining, or. Granulating? I'm not sure that's Granulating? It sounds like, it'll bring a more depth to. Wow. Um, what do
1: you mean, basophil? <laughs>
2: cell. Okay. So um, I think these, particularly in medical school, there's that particular image that has all the events within the cardiac cycle. It covers that, all the electrical, yeah.
1: mechanical events. Yeah.
2: That, we'll show I, that on actually, the YouTube well, page. I'll just tell you what it's called. All it's right. called the Wiggers Diagram, or di- the Wiggers. <laughs> Is <laughs> it? Yeah, cuz it's named after a physiologist Carl Wigger.
1: I <laughs> I did not know that. So, right, so that the 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 diagram that shows all the events within the cardiac some cycle. Some
2: will have more, some will have less, but generally speaking, you know, when you see the pressures of the ventricle and yeah. the aorta, the ECG, the sounds, the volumes, that yeah. that is the Wigger.
1: Well, diagram. Didn't know that. Wish yeah. I knew that. Wish I knew that so I could have told my Wigger. students you last week. You didn't know Carl Wigger? No, I didn't know Carl Wigger. Um, <laughs> all right. So so we, we, we'll kind
2: of refer to that throughout just, it, just it, so there is, um, you know, we bring in meaning to why we're doing this.
1: Yeah. And – if somebody's watching the this as a YouTube video on our YouTube channel, Dr. Well, Matt and Dr. Mike, we'll have the image up on the screen. Probably multiple times. Yeah. We might even just keep it up maybe. I don't know. We'll see how we <laughs> Put it over going. my face. Yeah. That would be great. <laughs> I would prefer that. Um, all right. So we should probably begin at some of the basics. At comes- the very
2: beginning. At four, four
1: weeks. Begin at the very beginning. Where the
2: heart began.
1: Oh. Uh, we're not talking about embryology. No, right? we don't. Do all right. So people need- but I think it's four weeks. All right. What's four weeks? Oh, when the heart starts beating. Well, pulsates. I've got a question for you. How many times does your heart beat in a minute? Um, Approximately. 60? Yeah, about 60 to 70. How many times would it beat in a day? Uh,
2: <laughs> 60 times 60 times 24.
1: About 100,000 yeah. beats per day. How many heartbeats does... Uh, in a lifetime? Yeah. How much did you say per day? Let's say 100,000.
2: So 365, so what's that, three-odd million? Or is that more than that? It's that's a year.
1: 3.5 billion. Billion. 3.5 billion heartbeats in a lifetime, approximately oh, one okay. per second, yep. uh, and it never stops. If it does, you're dead, right? What's that called? It's called when contraction. It's, when it stops. When it stops. Oh, it's called death, yes. <laughs> it's, it's called a cardiac arrest. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and because the heart is a muscle, right? Three muscle tissues well, in the
2: body. Most of it is.
1: Well, yeah. But you could make that argument with skeletal muscle, that most of it's That's muscle, All right. right?
2: I'll give you that. I'll give you that. So
1: the heart is... A muscle bag. A muscle bag, right? It used to be called the
2: button. We've got to be careful with that because I called the uterus a muscle bag and probably did the did same. Did you? Yeah, probably also did with the uh, bladder. So.
1: And you also call me that when you see me in the gym. <laughs> You're like, there's Mike the muscle bag. Uh, heart is a muscle. Skeletal muscle is a muscle. Smooth muscle is muscle, right? So there's three <laughs> muscle types. No, no, no. The reason why I'm saying this is because the job of muscle is to contract and when it contracts... To move things. ...it performs work and that work is to usually move stuff. So in the heart, it's to move blood, so create pressures to move blood. For skeletal muscle, it's attached to bones across joints, so it allows for the joints to bend and for bones to move and for us to perform conscious movement. And for skeletal, uh, smooth muscle, it lines hollow organs so that it either will shorten the tube or it will narrow the tube and that allows for the movement of stuff inside, whether it's... Fluid usually. Fluid or poop or whatever it may be. For it's, you, that's the same fluid. thing. It's still fluid. <laughs> um, all right, now I'm bringing this up because I want to ask you a quick question here. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily to do with the cardiac cycle, but in a way it is. If you were to contract your biceps once a second... There's not, that's not a T in there. I didn't, hey, hey, I'm I'm not you. I'm not keep you. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Hey, listener, if you want, go back to episodes where Matt's spoken about the biceps and you'll hear that he puts a T on the end of it and he calls it biceps, biceps. <laughs> it's infuriating. All right, uh, if you were to contract your biceps
2: mm.
1: once a second, do you think you could do, <laughs> everyone wants a YouTube video right now? Um, uh, I mean, keep going Matt's forever? Throw, no way. I, I just want you to contract your biceps with it. You don't even need to hold weights. Just do a elbow flex a elbow flexion once a second, mm. all day. Do you reckon you could do one hundred thousand in that day? Do you reckon you you'd do it, or do you reckon that muscle would fatigue and you couldn't do it?
2: I don't know. It's a good question. I think if it was, right, do you if it, you could do it for a week, if it was life or death, um right, you might be able to. Okay. for a day, all right.
1: But could you do it for a week?
2: Well, there was could a, you guy, do it for a month? there was a guy in India. Uh, yogi or something that just held his hand up in the air for like I don't yeah, know
1: that's decades. Different. That's different. He probably calcified the it, joint, and then he didn't even have to do anything about it after a couple of weeks. So
2: I guess there's well, there's isometric contraction there. Yeah, for some time. Let's ignore that.
1: But do it was think, severely
2: atrophied. Oh the
1: yeah, head. I remember seeing it. I, I'm surprised that blood flow got to it.
2: It was. A, I think he was actually in your lecture, and you just wouldn't answer his question.
1: <laughs> he's still. He's still. <laughs> 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 Excuse me. He's still waiting for me to answer, answer his question. Um, all right. The point I'm making is I don't think, and this isn't you know just because you don't have much much muscle mass, I don't think you could contract your biceps once a second, uh, every every second for a day, let alone a week, let alone a month, let alone a year, let alone 80 years. But your heart will. Mm-hmm. And my question is, what is it about the heart that allows for it to do this? But not skeletal muscle. Well, I wonder if
2: skeletal muscle could buy fibre type. So I wonder oh, like if there Slow twitch, yeah, fast yeah. twitch? And I just wonder if there is within the slow twitches where they, there are some skeletal muscles in your body which are pretty much activated all the time.
1: Well, the thing about slow twitch is it does have more in common with cardiac muscle than fast twitch.
2: You know, like the axial, postural that yep. are almost always contracting.
1: At least while we're awake. And one of the reasons that makes them less fatigable, those types of skeletal muscle, type 1, is because of the nutrient type it uses for energy, which are predominantly fats, fatty acids, compared to glucose. Now, this is what the heart uses as energy. The heart uses fatty acids predominantly. Can it also use lactate? It can also use lactate if need be but it really doesn't want to use glucose and it doesn't want to use amino acids and really doesn't want to use other substrates. So, but muscle tissue can use all of those Mm, substrates, mm. glucose, fatty acids, glycogen, oh, sorry, um, glycerol, amino acids. It really can if it needs to, which means that uh, it has a higher likelihood of producing byproducts and those byproducts can alter and affect its contractile ability. Okay. But just using one... Yep. uh, Reduces the byproducts. But the other thing is that with fatty acid metabolism, you get more bang for your buck in regards to ATP. You get way more ATP using fatty acids than you do for glucose, which, but it's a slower... Burn. Yeah, <laughs> quote-unquote burn, right, to, to use that energy source. and, is that and That's then, fine for the heart. So
2: does that then mean it's got a different arrangement of organelles, which when we went through the cell a couple of weeks ago, you have, what was it? Uh, peroxisomes, which chop up the fat into, from a large fatty acid chains into small, throws it to the mitochondria, which then can use it. So would they do similar things?
1: Yes. And uh, if you look at all the different muscle tissues, cardiac muscle, termed a myocyte, which we're going to refer to multiple times this episode, uh, 30% of its volume is mitochondria, okay. which is far greater than that of skeletal muscle. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why more mitochondria to produce ATP uses fatty acids, which allows for it to have more energy over time. So there's two reasons why cardiac muscle is infatigable. Any other reasons that you think? What's another reason why you're – you go to the gym, or I don't know, if you, if you ever have thought about going to the gym, if you were to lift weights, right, you get fatigued yeah, when yeah. you lift heavy weights. Yeah. What's one of the reasons why you get fatigued? Not, and I'm not talking about at the muscle tissue itself,
2: Maybe just the electrolytes?
1: Could be electrolytes, but what else? What's telling the muscle to contract?
2: Oh, well, calcium, right? Let's go or ATP.
1: Let's go earlier than that. Upstream.
2: Depolarization. Upstream. Nerve. Yeah. The motor so neurons. the motor the motor neuron
1: motor end plate. Yes, yeah, so acetylcholine. For, but even let's just talk about the motor neuron itself, right? Lower motor neuron innervates a skeletal muscle. Nervous system. Yes, so it, so think about a skeletal muscle, right? Your mm-hmm. biceps will be made up of how many muscle fibres or muscle cells do you think? Hundreds of thousands. Yep. right. So there's going to be hundreds or thousands of muscle cells mm-hmm. that make up your biceps. Each and every one of them needs a synapse from a lower motor neuron to tell it to contract.
2: Yep. But, and- but but one neuron does... Synapse on
1: multiple fibres. One neuron will synapse on multiple fibres, but every fibre needs a synapse, yep, yep. which means every fibre needs acetylcholine to be released yep. and every fibre needs a, a neural innovation. Yep. That doesn't work like that for the heart.
2: Okay, so you're saying that the heart individually can contract with, without needing a single stimulus from a neuron?
1: That's right. The, the, each muscle cell within a... Uh, Within the heart, doesn't require its own individual synapse.
2: And so you're saying within a skeletal muscle that this is part of the reason why you become fatigued. Correct. Oh.
1: Neural. Fa- you can have so neural it's neural fatigue. fatigue. Neural fatigue because. You and what is it about it? That's what causes neurofatigue? Yeah. We don't really know, but one one of the reasons has to do with constant firing of the action potential down the motor neuron has to do with... So it's not really about refractory periods or anything like that? Probably has to do with it, but also has to do with the acetylcholine, how much you have, how much you release, how much you can uptake, how much you can recycle, Mm. right? Because you need to release acetylcholine at every end plate, right? But for cardiac muscle... As soon as one cell depolarizes, it spreads through every other cell. Yep. And this is an important concept for the – hence why I brought this up. This is an important concept to understand for the cardiac cycle is because once you stimulate a single myocyte of the cardiac muscle – to depolarize and we'll talk in more detail what depolarization means that will spread to every other muscle cell within the heart because they are connected to one another and there's little gaps that allow for the uh, ions to spread through and when one heart muscle cell contracts the rest will contract and that's called a syncytium
2: yeah i'll just add a little bit of a detail there for a yes, second please though. the only because the heart Going back to what we were saying, predominantly the heart is just muscle, yep. muscle bag, but it does have its own connective tissue skeleton, which the muscles all build around. Yeah. Because some students may say, well, okay, fine, that's all well and good. But if you were to start the heart contraction, you know, at the top of the right atrium, yep. then you would expect the whole entire heart to contract almost at the same time, right? Uh, yep. But it doesn't. And part of the reason for that is there's a connective tissue uh, skeleton that separates different areas, but one predominant area is between the atria and the ventricles, which the depolarization depolarization wave can't get through. That's right. And then what that results in is some of the top chambers will contract, but the bottom ones won't, which then rely on another stimulus to keep going, which we'll get to.
1: Yes. But the point is that... All you need to do is trigger a single cell in the atria for it to spread through all the atria for them to contract, and then all you need to do is trigger a single cell in In the ventricles ventricles for it to spread through all the ventricles for them to subsequently contract. And that's important because now we're going to look at how blood flows through the heart because of these various contractile So
2: that's a good thing for the heart's function. Yes. But a bad thing of that concept is that if you get spontaneous depolarization in certain other regions, just like random myocytes, that can then generate its own yeah it potential, spread. right? Yes, and that's the basis of a dysrhythmia. Yeah, where for whatever reasons you have the initiation of another location in the heart that is firing at a quicker speed, mm. which then becomes the pacemaker yeah. to some degree of the heart, yeah.
1: right? Or you can even have multiple areas firing off. Yeah which spread its own depolarization event to the adjacent biocytes and it can't contract in unison, right, just like a little bag of worms and you Mm. can get fibrillation as an example. So let's think about, if we were to go back to just the heart very uh, basically and think about it, even though it's not shaped like a ball, but let's just say we've got a roundish heart, like a cone, like a, yeah, like a cone. Upside down pyramid. Yeah, okay, all of those things, right? A more rounded upside-down pyramid, there's four chambers in the heart. The two at the top are called atria, the two below are called ventricles. The atria on the right, so top right, is connected to the ventricle below it on the bottom right, and the atria on the top left is connected to the ventricle below it on the bottom left. But the uh, right-hand chambers, so the right atria, right ventricle, and the left-hand chambers, left atria, left ventricles, they don't, or they shouldn't at least, have communication with each other. Yeah, uh, that's right. So they're separated by a bit of tissue. Septums. Called a septum,
2: yes. Which uh, you can see de- defects there. That would be septal defects. Yeah. And most notably the atria defects would be something that, well, the atria septum closes at birth. Yes. And that's where we had the in over between the left and the right. Yeah.
1: Yep. Okay, so... Uh, the way you should think about it, while when we talk about blood flow through the heart, we usually start at some random point and move our way through, and that's exactly what we're going to do. But you need to remember that when the blood enters the heart, it will enter the atria first, and then it will go from the atria to the ventricles, and then it will go from the ventricles out of the heart to somewhere else. This happens simultaneously in approximately equivalent volumes too. Has to be. Right? So when you've got, let's just say... Uh, and I'm just going to take a number, let's just say 700 mils enters the left chamber, you're going to have 700 mils entering the right chamber at the same time. That may not be the volume because I don't have it in front of me and I can't remember it.
2: But Oh, well, the outflow is 70 mils per stroke usually.
1: Yes. So it's probably uh, c- closer to like 100 mils entering
2: Yeah, and because c- you've got some
1: left over. Yeah, okay. Got, yeah, yeah. Let's start at a random place <laughs> because it doesn't matter where we Look, start.
2: Look, I think we should just start where all the textbooks start.
1: Which is the Vena cava Yes. All right.
2: But but what you're saying here is this is a bit arbitrary yeah. because it doesn't really happen like this. Yeah. But for simplicity, we're just following it from thro- through the heart as it would, as you would kind of think as blood's coming into the heart for the first time.
1: Yeah. If you were to let's just say uh, I shrunk you down and threw you on the back of a red blood cell, you're now tracing your way through the heart and, and the blood vessels. Yeah. And this is the journey that you would take, yeah. right, through the vas- cardiovascular system. Yes. But remember that they're all, in a way, happening simultaneously. That's so right. if we start at the vena cava, there is a superior and an inferior. So superior vena cava is a vein. All veins enter the heart. Mm-hmm. All arteries exit the heart. So think of the A in artery as away from the heart. So you got the vena cava. That's draining blood from above the heart. Basically, yep, So superior, inferior. And then the inferior vena cava will drain the blood from everything below the heart.
2: Below the diaphragm.
1: Below the diaphragm. And it's bringing this uh, relatively deoxygenated blood, low in nutrients, you know, high in carbon dioxide, back into the right atrium yep. of the heart. And then it'll go from the right atrium into the right ventricle, but must travel through a valve. Yep. What's this valve called?
2: I think these are called the inlet valves because they're allowing blood to go into the ventricles. Because when we're talking about the cardiac cycle today, the big focus will be around the ventricles Mm. more so and a huge focus on the left ventricle, right? Yeah. So even though all this stuff is happening through all the atria and the ventricles, but when we're explaining that particular diagram a bit later, we're really going to focus much more on the left ventricle. So as you said, we've got to go through a valve... On this particular side of the heart, when so the right side between the right atrium and right ventricle, there's a valve that is preventing backflow. That's usually what valves are there for. That's right. To stop blood going back to where it just came from, because that would be counterproductive. Yeah. So this is on the right side, and it's between the atrium and the ventricle, and it's named for that accordingly for that reason. So So the right
1: atrioventricular valve, sometimes termed the tricuspid valve because there's three flaps to the valve. Three cusps, yeah. Yeah. All right, so now it's in the right ventricle, Mm. this blood. Now the right ventricle uh, will take blood and push it out because remember all blood will leave the heart via ventricles and it pushes it out via an artery because we said that arteries leave the heart and this, because it's deoxygenated blood and high in carbon dioxide, we sort of know where it needs to go. Yeah. We need to... Get that carbon dioxide out and bring new oxygen in. So it's going to have to go to the lungs. So we call this artery that's leaving the right ventricle. The pulmonaries. The pulmonary artery, or specifically the pulmonary trunk.
2: So at the point, because it's a like a tree, the, the largest part of the tree is going to be the trunk. Yes, and that's before the part it goes that into branches into smaller ones. Yeah,
1: as it leaves, uh, the blood has to move through another valve.
2: Yep. Right? So the, and this one's going to be termed. The pulmon- <laughs> the pulmonary, uh, uh, the pulmonary valve.
1: Yep. Or the pulmonary semilunar valve. Yep.
2: And the way I re- these also have three cusps, not, not not the kind of the same way as you saw in the tricuspid. No, they look quite different. They're more semi half mooned. Yeah, crescent. And the way I've the way I remember this is it's got one anterior and two posterior, and because it's P it's got the two posterior at the back
1: so oh, cool yeah that's good and so it moves up through these uh semilunar, this semilunar valve uh, and obviously it's got some force behind it from the contraction of the of the right ventricle and as it goes up the pulmonary trunk we know that we have a left and right lung so the pulmonary trunk
0: bifurcates branches.
1: or splits into the right pulmonary artery and the left pulmonary artery yep. and ultimately that goes to the lungs get rid of the carbon dioxide, bring in new oxygen. Now this blood needs to go back to the heart because it needs a bit more force behind it to get it to all the different tissues of the body, top of the head to the tip of the toes. So it will come back to the heart, and we said that's via veins, and it enters the left atria via the pulmonary veins, of which there are four that enter the left atrium. That's right, yep. So it goes into the left atrium, moves through into the left ventricle through another valve, which is obviously going to be called the left atrioventricular valve, also known as the bicuspid valve, also known as the mitral valve. Yep. And now the blood is in the left ventricle where it will contract and push the blood out of another artery, and this artery we term the aorta. Hmm. So it moves into the aortic trunk, and there's another semilunar valve, mm-hmm. right? Just like there was with the pulmonary trunk. Uh, looks very similar. And as it moves up and through, it's going to go through the aorta, which will just continually branch into smaller vessels that will ultimately feed every single tissue of the body. That's right. And then once that's happened, we go back to the heart via the vena cava. Yep. And that's a circuit. And it's a circuit. So everyone must remember, first of all, that when the blood enters the atria, it enters both at the same time and then goes into the ventricles at the same time and then leaves the ventricles at the same time. And that continues. So what's happening in the left side of the heart and the right side of the heart is simultaneous and equi-volume.
2: Yes, that's right. Important. A couple of other things just to add here is, as you've mentioned, the volume is equal on both sides. It has to be because if it wasn't, you would have blood kind of... Or backing up into one system, or yeah. One, over time, it would yeah. start to be really uneven. It's also important to note that, the, in terms of the work that the heart does per cycle or per minute, yeah, um, the, the workload that it has to exert, it's easier for it to push volume than it is to push against pressure.
1: What it's, do you mean? So push volume as opposed to push pressure. Yeah, so if you look
2: at the heart, so you've let's say you cut the heart in a frontal plane, so you want to see the differences in size between the left ventricle and and the right ventricle. Yeah. Left and the right ventricle. Okay. Now, one of the first things you'll see is the musculature on the left is significantly more than the right. Yeah. Now, why would that be if um, they're both pushing out the same amount of volume?
1: Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, well, because the... The right ventricle is pushing blood to the lungs, which tends to sit just either side of the heart. It's not very far away. It doesn't need to go against much gravity. The left ventricle needs to push blood to the top of our head, down to the tip of our toes, through multiple branching smaller and smaller arteries. So it needs to generate a lot more force. But so- it's also pushing against more force. As well, uh, pressure, more afterload, more, right. more, more yeah. backward pressure. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, so in order, so your point is that in order to get the same volume out, it needs to generate greater force.
2: It does, but it's working against the pressure. Okay. So therefore, you, your heart needs to have more musculature to push against that resistance.
1: Okay. So, uh, what, what I don't get the point that you were saying before, though, because it is, it has to generate more pressure to get the same volume out.
2: Yeah. So the point what I'm making here is. Even though the left side and the right side are delivering the same amount of uh, output of volume, Volume. because there's more resistance for the left to push against, Mm -hmm. it will need a greater amount of force to do so. That means it needs more muscle and as a result it's a a greater demand on the heart in that region. And so when the heart has to push against a greater pressure, you're putting a lot more strain on the heart. So – in terms of looking at pathologies like moving into say ischemic events or even heart failure yeah it's much worse on the heart if you if it's trying to push against a resistance or a pressure than it is to deliver volume do, do you get what i mean i think so, so it's it uses up a lot more energy to push against pressure than it is to deliver volume okay yeah yeah so yep. that's going to be important when we're doing the cardiac cycle and we look at pushing through valves and things like that. Cool,
1: that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, All right, so hopefully uh, that overview of the heart and the way blood flows through it makes sense. Now let's take what we've spoken about and let's break it up into a single heartbeat. So what is actually happening mechanically in regards to contraction and relaxation from a single heartbeat? Now broadly speaking, because it's a muscle, two things can happen. It can contract or it can relax. Mm. And the term that we use for contraction is? Systole. Systole or systolic or systole. And relaxation is? Uh, diastole. Diastole or diastolic or diastole.
2: And usually when we hear these terms, it refers to the ventricles, right?
1: Yeah, it really does but when we're referring to it's it. It's not yet.
2: entirely accurate because you can have atrial systole, diastole. Yep. And you can have ventricular systole, diastole. Yep. But generally speaking, when you'll hear that, we're referring to the ventricles.
1: Yes. Now, if we take uh, what's happening in a single heartbeat a- as a cardiac cycle, you could effectively say, well, where do you be- Where does a heartbeat begin? And that's just like saying what we were saying before, where does blood flow begin, right? So you can take any random uh, spot in regards to uh, a heartbeat and begin there. And I don't know about you, Matt, but I like beginning uh, at the filling phase. I like to begin where the heart is just filling. So where we sort of started with our explanation before about blood entering the vena cava, here I would like to start at what we... So the very first phase that I want to refer to of the cardiac cycle, which I break into five phases. Mm -hmm. Some textbooks have six, some have seven. doesn't matter because it's all the same stuff. They just depends on the level of detail or where they like to draw the line as to an event, right? So I like to start at ventricular filling. That's my first cardiac phase. And what's happening here is that blood is entering the atria on both sides of the heart via the vena cava and the pulmonary veins. And the blood enters not just the atria, but due to gravity, blood will fall down through the AV valves into the ventricles. This is passive, right? There's yep, no contractile yep. event happening in this process. It's just blood entering the atria and then falling down into the ventricles via the AV valves.
2: Are you cool with that? Oh, yeah, we can do that.
1: Right, so that's ventricular filling.
2: All right.
1: Now, do you want to go through all the phases or do you want to go through what's happening in regards to valves and electrically and pressures and stuff? Yeah, I think now? we should... I think.
2: In each phase, we should just describe what's happening mechanically and And electrically.
1: Yeah, we can do that. So should we do all five and then we go back and then go through each one? Just go through the five quickly? Sure, okay. And then we can go back to ventricular filling and then do... Okay, okay. Is that all right? Yeah. All right, so that's ventricular filling. That's the first phase. The next thing that's going to happen is not all the blood has fallen down into the ventricles because the filling phase is faster then the blood being able to move through the AV valves. So the atria will be filled up with blood and then they contract. So the second phase is atrial contraction, also known as atrial systole. Okay, right. And this is just really to make sure that the blood that's entered the heart is now in the ventricles.
2: Okay, so, cool that? so here we're still within the ventricular diastole. Yes. Which is the ventricular fill-in. Yeah. What you said at the start is it's passive to begin with, which means the AV valve is open. Yeah. And almost just by gravity, uh, blood has just fallen from the atria straight into the ventricles. With, without any real active force mm-hmm. from the atria's muscle itself.
1: Yes, that's right.
2: Now, just to add a little bit of detail there, that... First phase, sometimes um, there'll be two parts to this when you look at the, the the Wiggers diagram. Okay. And this sometimes is known as the rapid and slow or sometimes they call it reduced ventricular filling. All right. And so that just means the amount of blood that's flowing into the ventricle happens at the front end quicker and then it slows down because it's kind of got less force behind it. Yeah. Okay. Now about 90% of ventricular filling happens passively. Yeah. So the last, well, what you've moved on to now, which is the atrial systole. Yeah. That's just getting the last bit of 10% of blood out of the atria.
1: Yes, that's right. That's right. So that's that second phase of atrial systole. But it's the same thing. It's like you said, it's just blood filling those ventricles. Yeah. Right. Then the third phase is now we have uh, ventricular contraction beginning. Now, when ventricular... Or ventricular systole, yep. Yes, or ventricular systole, that's right. Now, I want you to think about this, Matt, and listen up. If you can track the ventricles, right, if you were just... If, imagine if you had a, a, a slow-mo camera, right, on your heart and you watched frame by frame as the ventricles contract, you're going to hit a point where... Because if you think about it, when the ventricles contract they're reducing the volume or the size of the chamber inside, right? Sort of squeezing around the blood. And it's going to hit a point where that pressure gets so high that it's going to close the AV valves,
2: right? And it's important to note here with the valves that it's just the pressure difference between them that will cause them to close.
1: Yes, that's right. And so the pressure now in the ventricle is higher than that of the atria, so the AV valves close, but the pressure, pressure in the ventricle isn't high enough yet to eject the blood uh, through the semilunar valves. So,
2: so the pressure in the downstream is still greater than the upstream.
1: That's right, yeah. or, or near equivalent. Near equivalent. Right? And so we've hit this point, which we call the isovolumetric contraction. So iso means the same yeah. volumetric contraction. Same volume. The way I explained to it, uh, the way I explained it to my students last week, was if you had a, a balloon that you half filled with water, and you left the top open, and I asked you to squeeze it with your hands, the point in which the water has just gone right to the very top of the hole of that balloon, but hasn't yet left the balloon, the amount of force that you've had to place on the balloon to hit that point, that's the isovolumetric contraction point. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. So that's important because AV valves have closed here. Okay. So all the
2: valves valves are now closed in the heart.
1: That's right. Yes. Now the next phase, which is, sorry, do you want to add something?
2: You don't want to do heart sounds. Not yet. I think let's go back and then we can go through each one.
1: Now the next phase is still ventricular systole, Mm -hmm. but it's the next part of it in which, that fraction of a second after we've hit this ice, iso- Because the isovolumetric contraction is a fraction of a moment, right? It's a snapshot. Well, if you get,
2: Yeah, I think it's important to note... Let's just... To make it a bit more difficult because <laughs> yeah, you... Yeah, let's make it more difficult. Well, not difficult, but like you said at the start, you know, an an, an average heartbeat is yep. 60 per minute, yep. which means this cardiac cycle is one second.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: But let's just... Lengthen it out a little bit, and just say your resting heart rate is seventy five beats per minute.
1: Okay, so okay. it's a little bit slower than one a second. So that what that faster, sorry, than one a so
2: second. Yeah. So what that means is per cardiac cycle yep. is 0.8 of a second, yep. or eight hundred milliseconds. Yep. Now from that, f- five eighths yep. is diastole. So that's yes, most of it. So relaxation. That's right. Filling. It's filling. Yeah. And only three-eighths or th- 300 milliseconds mm. is systole. Yes. All right? And so when we look at systole, and I know you're going to get, just call it as, as one part, yeah. but the, a lot of the diagrams will break it into three, which well, means... Well, systole is yeah, two parts. Isometric contraction so and
1: ventricular ejection. It really
2: means that th- these are in 100 milliseconds per, per one. So Approximately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So is- isometric contraction is, or isometric volume...
1: Isovolumetric contraction
2: is 100 milliseconds yeah. in duration.
1: Fraction, yeah, tiny, right. tiny. So, um, so immediately after isovolumetric contraction, the pre- the ventricles will continue to contract, and the pressure then the fr- you know that point one of a second later or less will be higher in the ventricles than that of the. Arteries leaving the ventricles, yeah. so the aorta and the pulmonary artery, and now the semilunar valves open, and blood will start to get uh, will start to be ejected from the ventricles. Yeah. AV valves remain closed, but the semilunar valves now open in this phase called ventricular ejection.
2: Yeah, and it's also important to note here that the difference between the right and left side. I know we said we'll probably mostly focus on the left side. Mm. The pressure we're talking about here is approaching 100 millimeters of mercury. But if you for the left, for the left. But yeah. if you jump across the other side, it's probably only twenty.
1: Yeah, that's right. So
2: there's not much pressure. Yeah. And yeah. again, this is what underscores what I was saying earlier, in terms of the mechanical energy that has to be, uh, what's the word, um, governed by the left side. It's so yeah. much more than the right. Mm. Even so, it's delivering the same amount of volume. Yeah. The pressure is so much different.
1: Yeah. Uh, you could use the analogy, and maybe I'm making it more complex here. Uh, You've got two nightclubs and you've got a line of 100 people that need to get into both nightclubs, right? But one nightclub is packed. The other one's relatively empty. But we need to get these 100 patrons into those nightclubs within five minutes, Right? So you need the same volume or number of patrons entering the nightclub within the same time period, but one is packed. So what you need to do is you need to generate more force behind the line of the packed one to get all those people in. So you've got to push harder to get all those people in just to get the 100 people in in the same time that you get the other 100 people in who are just strolling their way through. Right? So that's now ventricular ejection, mm. right? which for me is the fourth of the fifth phase of the cardiac cycle. And then once the blood's been ejected from the ventricles, you now need to relax those ventricles. So ventricular diastole. But during this phase of ventricular diastole, just before any blood re-enters the chambers, you've got, again, this fraction of a moment where nothing is leaving the ventricles, but also nothing is entering the ventricles, and both the AV and semilunar valves are closed. But it's the opposite of what was happening in isovolumetric contraction, where the ventricles were maximally filled up and nothing was leaving. Here, they're maximally empty and nothing's filling it up, Mm. right? Mm. And so this is isovolumetric relaxation. The moment before the phase that we started with, which is ventricular filling, where things re-enter. So
2: here, uh, unlike the other one, so there's no volume change, but with the isovolumetric relaxation, yep. there's no volume because, the, as you said, the the valves are closed. Mm-hmm. But the the actual space in the ventricles is expanding. So it's almost like you uh, you know got a syringe and you're bringing the uh, plunger back down, yep. but your f- fingers on the top. Or- so it's generating almost a bit of suction pressure, yes, which is going to be important for the start of diastole yeah. because as soon as you then open the AV valves, yeah. there's going to be a lot of force yes, okay. sucking it in, yeah. Yeah. which yeah. I think is – and that's, again, underscores what I said at the start. Remember I said diastole or the ventricular fill-in, the, the first two parts of it really do 90% of the fill-in. Yes. That's because it's almost sucked it back in. Yes. The ventricles almost sucked it back in. So it's even more than gravity.
1: Yes, that's right. That's right. So that's that for me. They're the five phases, right? Ventricular filling, atrial systole, isovolumetric contraction, ventricular ejection, and isovolumetric relaxation. Now, I think we should go through the what's happening at the valves here now, because we've sort of touched upon it, and talk about why it's important to understand what's happening with the valves at each point. Don't you think? Well, I think yeah,
2: but I think we should probably we'll do pressures first. no. I think we we'll probably should do the ECG. Because,
1: no, because no,
2: no, that's no. kind of telling you electrically what's happening, which then results in what the muscle's doing, which then results in...
1: No, let's do valves. Let's okay. do valves because it's super quick, right? Because we sort of already... I think valves. All right. All right. Hands up if you think valves. <laughs> that's uh, outvoted. 50-50. Well, that's outvoted. I saw you put your hand up. All right. So in ventricular filling, right, which is passive, things entering the, the heart, both the atria and the ventricles... The AV valves are open and the semilunar valves are closed, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. You don't really hear a particular heart sound in this process, but the AV open, semilunar closed. Then the next phase, which is atrial systole, where the atria contract, like you said, to force that last part of blood out from the atria into the ventricles, the same valves are open and the same valves are closed, right? So again, you don't hear any sounds here.
2: Well, let's just go back a step. Yeah, I should have done this much earlier. Okay, Just about... What are you actually hearing? What's actually occurring to, to cause a sound in the cardiac cycle?
1: Well, I was going to say it on the next one. Oh, okay. Because then it sort of gives the... So with the third point, right, the third phase, where the ventricles start to contract, so ventricular systole, we are generating so much force and pressure inside the ventricles that the AV valves have now closed, but the semilunar valves have still remained closed. Mm-hmm. Yep, now. Yep. At this point, we've gone from an open valve to a closed mm-hmm. valve. So now, explain what you were just about to say.
2: Yeah. So any time you hear a sound in the heart, it usually indicates uh, the resistance of fluid moving against something. Yeah. And when we look at the heart sounds, we know that you know, in most um, generalities, we refer to the lub dub lub dub lub dub. Yeah. And even like my daughter, who's three is learning that just from the cartoons. And so, so <laughs> right. she walks around with a a, a practice stethoscope and <laughs> she presses against her dolls and her bears and always okay. says, bop, 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 Hold up.
0: What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.
1: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: Oh, so oh, we know that there's, there's a sound there, right? Yeah. And generally speaking, there's the two sounds which is the lub-dub, yep. which we refer to more medically as S1, S2.
1: Yes. So lub is S1, dub yeah. is S2. I, I guess so. Yeah.
2: Now, what is actually happening to cause the sounds? As you said, um, there's obviously have to be something mechanically occurring to cause uh, a reverberation through it to be then heard. Yeah. Now, in the heart mechanically, you would assume, well... We spoke about valves opening and closing. So if you were going to do it with a door, Mm. uh, which one do you think would make, in terms of the door analogy, which one do you think most likely to make the sound?
1: Mm. Well, if I were to open a door, you don't really hear that. But when you were to close a door, you hear it. Yeah. So you're saying that. So all the the stuff that you just said is basically meaning that when a valve closes, you hear it. Yes. And that's a heart sound. And it's not necessarily... It's not the valve closing. That's right. It's the blood... Uh, hitting of, the valve yeah. upon closure. That's right. That's like – because you defined it earlier as like the, the resistant pressure of, of of blood hitting something. Yeah. And that's – yeah, so in this case, in ventricular filling, the first step, uh, semilunar closed, uh, AV open, right? Yeah. Then in the next phase, atrial systole, same thing, semilunar closed, uh, uh, AV valve open. And people might be going, how come we're not hearing any heart sounds here? Because nothing's closed. Just, they've remained one open and one has remained closed. But go to the next one.
2: But I will say there, sometimes you will hear an abnormal sound there. Of the blood
1: swooshing past the closed semilunar valve.
2: No, no. As the atria, because you spoke about atrial systole here. Yep. You know, as the atria is pushing the last bit of blood out of the atria. Yep. If the ventricle isn't well uh, compliant to that and it's stiff... And rigid, yep. or maybe even hypertrophied, it's not responding well f- from that pushing. In. Right. So go into your analogy of the nightclub. Yep. If the bouncers are trying to force the last ten percent of people in, you
1: might but, hear a few grunts.
0: But they,
2: yeah, that's right. That the people who are on the other side, if yep.
1: they're not, uh, if they're not uh,
2: resist, yeah. if, if they're resisting it, yeah. it's going to cause a pressure. Yeah. And that's an abnormal sound.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say that's not one of the typical no, heart sounds. But then, when you look at isovolumetric contraction, the blood is forcing against a closed now AV valve. So the AV valve shuts, and the blood going against it is the first heart sound. That's the lub. And so, the point we're getting here is that your first heart sound, if you listen, is going, you hear, when you hear that lub of the lub dub, you now know what's happening in the cardiac cycle when you hear this sound. It's isovolumetric contraction. Mm. This is the ventricles starting that contractile Mm. moment where the pressure's just high enough to close the AV valves but not high enough for the blood to exit the semilunar valves. So that's the next step, which is ventricular ejection going through the semilunar valves. So now the semilunar valves open. Spring open. But you don't hear it because the door's opening. But then once all the blood has been ejected and the blood wants to re-enter and you get that suction within the ventricles, these semilunar valves shut. That's right. And that's the isovolumetric relaxation and that's the second heart sound, mm-hmm. the dub. And so that means now this lub dub lub is happening in isovolumetric contraction and dub is happening in isovolumetric relaxation. Yeah. Yep. That's, f-
2: that's fair. Fair enough. Now, from a clinical standpoint, yes. where would you want to listen to those? Oh, yeah, great point. Okay, so maybe I'll just move down the, the front of the thorax just by... Uh, locational difference, yeah. not so much where they're heard. Well, in terms of the order of where it's happening mechanically in the heart. So,
1: if You're you saying anatomically anatomically, you to listen, to that's right.
2: So, yeah. if you were to look at the front of the chest, you have the big bone that runs down the midline, which is the sternum. Yeah. Okay. The the, the bone uh, has kind of three parts to it. The sternum. Yeah. You have the manubrium. You have the body, and you have the ziphoid. Close to where the the body and manubrium articulate. Yeah. We're in the ballpark of the second intercostal space. Yeah. So just on the right side of the sternum, yep. that would be the best location to hear the aortic semilunar valve.
1: The aortic semilunar valve. Yep. So this is the one that you're going to be hearing in ventricular relax isovolumetric relaxation. Yeah, so that would be S2. Yep. And now... Up yeah, here.
2: That's right. Yep. Now if you go... Directly the same same height, but go on the other side of the sternum. Yep. that would there be the the location, the pulmonary area area where you would want to listen to the pulmonary valve. Again, so, semi lunar.
1: Yep. So that's the so left still right. S2. Yep.
2: But it's just a better location to hear the pulmonary valve.
1: Right. So either side of the second intercostal space, you can hear uh, the S2 sound. Yep. All
2: right. Now with that, just a, a little bit more depth is those two, so the S2, sometimes slightly split right. physiologically, so it's normal, yep. just because um, the pulmonary is more associated with breathing mm-hmm. and if a person was to inspire uh, during the cardiac cycle, which they would, uh, but you were listening to it, if they were to inspire, the change in pressure within the thorax mm-hmm. would change the way that blood preload in the heart, which would then extend slightly, the uh, the systole, yep. which then would cause the pulmonary uh, closure a bit behind Double the aortic.
1: Right, interesting. Yeah. Okay, and so where can you now hear the AV valves close, so S1? Yeah, so
2: now you go have to go down to intercostal spaces, still stay on, on the left side. All right. Okay, so if you go from two down to four.
1: Okay, fourth intercostal, yeah. So
2: now you're at the right AV or the tricuspid valve. Right. And so this would be the location where you'd listen to... For the S one, the oh, S one, that's right, for tricuspid. Yep. Okay. Then to hear the mitral. Now yep. remember the mitral is on the left side of the heart. Right. So you're not in the intercostal space now. Oh, okay. You have to go across to the midclavicular line. Right. But you go down to sort the, of like to, where the nipple is. Yeah. Down to the fifth.
1: Okay, which is sort of just a, what, a little bit below the nipple, probably on the left hand side.
2: Well, maybe a bit higher because I think the nipples are probably closer to the apex.
1: Yeah, yeah. So maybe a, touch a little higher. bit higher than that, yeah. and so that's where you're going to hear the mitral valve closing yeah. during uh, isovolumetric contraction. Yeah. So your S1 sound. Yes. Perfect.
2: And so there are the, if clinically, if you wanted to assess the valves.
1: Yeah. They're the anatomical locations. That's probably the best
2: locations can can for auscultate. yeah
1: all right, cool. Uh, should we talk about the electrical components now,
2: yeah. which you wanted to do earlier? But well, I didn't really necessarily enjoy this. Oh, but I sorry. just thought.
0: <laughs> Sorry,'re no, you're, you're,
2: you're the electrical man. Am I? I yeah, don't know what the, that means. You're the sparky of the heart.
1: Oh, I, I see. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely not, but I do like ECGs uh, and talking about the physiology underpinning ECGs. Uh, so, all right, an ECG, uh, this is when you go see the doctor, they put a bunch of sticky electrodes all over you. They put 10 electrodes on you, four on your limbs. So this is for a 12-lead, right? This is for a 12-lead ECG. So left arm, right arm, left leg, right leg. And then you can put, so there's four. And then you can put six on your chest called the precordial leads. Mm -hmm. And you place those, well, you basically place them on the front of your chest.
2: Like a big U shape.
1: Yeah. So it sort of goes very similar to where you just spoke about for the uh, auscultation for the sounds, except not the second rib, not that high. So basically what we end up having is... Around about the fourth intercostal space, you're going to have one on the right of the uh, manubrium, one on the sternum, uh, sternum, sorry, one on the left, and then you continue all the way down the left, down these fourth and fifth intercostal spaces towards the armpit, Uh, and now what you've got is six electrodes on the chest called the precordial. Now, that's six plus four, you would think ten lead ECG, Mm. but in actual fact, let's just ignore the precordial leads, the ones on the chest, and just focus on the ones on the arm The one that's placed on the uh, right foot is a reference. So what we mean by that is it's not a ground like when you've got a a, a plug in the wall, right? And you've got that bottom, well, in Australia at least, you've got three uh, prongs. The bottom one is a ground. That's not what this is. This is a reference. So in a way, it sort of like subtracts the noise, because your body's filled with electrical events Mm. and the whole point of an ECG is to measure electrical events or at least changes in electrical events. So think of the one on the right foot as it doesn't contribute to the electrical... Scrap it. Scrap it. So now what we've got is three. Right arm, left arm, left
2: leg. It's a nine lead ECG.
1: So it's a nine lead ECG. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, but... These are uh, bipolar leads, meaning they can have conversations with Mm -hmm. each other. So the right arm can speak to the left arm and the left arm can speak to the uh, left leg and the right arm can speak to the left leg and it creates a triangle Mm. called Eindhoven's Triangle. Now, to not talk about the physics associated with it, the way you should think about this is the individual limb uh, electrodes, so the one on the right arm, the one on the left arm and the one on the left leg, they will all, have, they'll all be giving you a separate view of the heart from where they're located. So picture them as a set of eyes looking at the heart from where they are mm. situated, yep. right? Almost as though the one on the right arm is at the right shoulder, the one on the left arm is at the left shoulder and the one on the left leg is at sort of like your left hip. And picture them just looking at the heart from those perspectives. Yep. Now, the conversations that they have with each other creates uh, vectors, which are electrical signals that in a way, and again, I'm oversimplifying here, not exaggerating, simplifying, in which when the right arm speaks to the left arm, what it ends up doing is it creates a view of the heart, mm-hmm. right? So right arm speaks to left arm. And it's generating electrical signals that move through the heart, these vectors that move through the heart from that angle. So think about it going from uh, right shoulder to left shoulder. And then act as though you're creating planes or sections through the heart in that, sure. yep. In, yep. that in that line, yep. in that direction. Take the average of that vector on the opposing side, and that gives you a limb. Lead, uh, that gives you a lead view called lead one. Okay. Right? We're going to have this up on the YouTube video if you want to visualize this. Then you're going to have a conversation from the uh, right arm to the left leg. And again, think about that angle, that diagonal angle that it's having and it cross-sectioning the heart in that vector all the way through and then think so about... So it's more of an oblique... Vector. More of an oblique vector through the heart and then picture the average of all those vectors looking at the heart from the opposing side. That's the lead two view. That lead two view is looking at the heart pretty much from the apex up to the base of the heart. Again, watch the YouTube video or just Google this. So that's limb two? That's limb lead two. And then limb lead three is the conversation from the left arm to the left leg, vector all the way through, and it's looking at the heart from the bottom right perspective, right? So it's
2: more vertical.
1: Yes, that's right. So that's limb lead three. So now what we've got is not just the six leads on the chest and the three on the arm, which is nine, we've got an additional three from all those vectors, which gives us the 12-lead ECG view. Okay. Okay. Now, importantly, it's lead two, that's the one I said, that's looking at the heart from the apex up towards the base. That gives us what we term our trace lead on an ECG. Yep, yep. And generally speaking, what these leads do is they all give varying perspectives of the heart. The limb leads, uh, so uh, the right, the left, the foot, and lead one, two, and three. They view the heart from uh, what would you call it? A, 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 a frontal plane. View, Circular. Right. Yes. Like looking like a clock. around like a clock around the heart, and the chest leads, the precordial leads, are looking at it from like this cross-sectional, a- cross-sectional anterior, uh, anterior lateral perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So now you've got. 12 sets of eyes on the heart looking at it from different angles, and then the readout you get is from 12 different perspectives. Beautiful. Which means that all they're picking up are electrical events that are happening either towards them or away from them. If an electrical event occurs perpendicular to one of the leads, it doesn't pick it up. It just gives you like a flat line. Okay. All right? But luckily, there's so many leads that you'll be able to see that perpendicular event for that lead. That might be an event that's happening either towards or away from another lead. So that's important. So it gives you this great perspective. Now, we say it's picking up electrical events. The question is, what are these electrical events? The electrical events are either depolarization or repolarization. And the way you should think about this is that anytime you have excitable tissue in the body, which is tissue that can do something, it can either be at rest and do nothing, or it can be stimulated to do something, that's an excitable tissue. Muscle, muscle. Nervous, endocrine, they're the three major types of excitable tissue. All of these excitable tissues, you'll find, have charge differences across their membranes. And this is super important. It's this charge difference which gives it the capacity to change the charge Mm. and therefore stimulate it to do something. So if we were to take a cardiomyocyte, a typical heart muscle cell, and just draw it like a circle, like a ball, and have a look at what's happening across the membrane, you'll see that there is a pump in it called the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. We've spoken about it a million times. It throws three sodium out of the myocyte, and sodium has a positive charge associated with it, and throws two potassium in, which has a positive charge associated with it. So it throws three positive things out, two positive things in. If you were to measure the charge difference across the membrane now, it would be slightly more positive outside compared to inside. Because you've thrown three positive things out and only two positive things in, this charge difference, if you were to measure it, would be about negative five millivolts inside compared to outside. Uh-huh. So the inside's negative five millivolts compared to the outside. Simple. But there's also embedded in these excitable tissues uh, leaky potassium channels. Now we know now that because of that sodium-potassium pump, we've got heaps of potassium inside. If you've got a leaky channel or an open door, that potassium wants to leak outside.
2: So it ca- follow its gradient.
1: Yes. Carrying its charge with it, carrying the positive charge outside, yep. making it even more positive outside compared to inside. Yep. Now, the point I'm getting across here is that what we've now just generated or shown is that we now have a uh, what we call a resting membrane potential. And this is really important because what we find is that in this resting membrane potential... It's positive outside of the membrane and negative inside. This is called polarised. So the term we now use is polarised. It is what we call the resting membrane potential. Yep, yep. Right? Okay, yep. easy. Now, the heart isn't doing anything yet, right? It's relaxed. Nothing's happening. We have certain types of modified Myocardia in the heart, which we call nodal cells. Mm-hmm. They're also termed conductile cells, and we've got the sinoatrial nodal cells yep. and the atrioventricular nodal cells. So the SA nodal cells are located in the top right atrium, and the SA and the AV nodal cells are located between the uh, atria and between the ventricles, sort of that the top of the septum.
2: Yeah, right? near near the um, tricuspid valve, kind of the septal cusp of it. Yes. in that region.
1: So sort of I. Picture it in a way sort of like center of the heart-ish, but that's just a gross oversimplification. Yes. All right. What happens is because the heart itself doesn't require extrinsic innovation, meaning it doesn't need to be stimulated by our central nervous system.
2: Although it does. It does to modulate. That's right.
1: Yeah. Uh, The SA nodal cells, they don't actually have a true resting membrane potential meaning that the negativity inside compared to outside is there, so it's polarised, but it's constantly drifting and changing. It starts off as being around about negative 60 inside compared to outside, but there are these wh- what are called funny sodium channels. That's the actual name. And they're like the leaky potassium channels. All right. So you've got these leaky sodium channels, but we know sodium is mostly outside.
2: So sodium sodiums going to come into the... Nodal cell.
1: Yeah, so sodium continues to drift inside a nodal cell, making it slightly more positive inside. Now, the thing is that there is always, for excitable tissues, thresholds.
2: So this is the all-or-nothing noth- theory, which we spoke about in one of the A to Zs?
1: Yes. Uh, the, and, and so this threshold, which is around about negative 40, so it has to go from negative 60 inside to negative 40, which is slightly more positive, if it hits that point, it starts to open channels, right? It's like the key so, if enough positive sodium enters a nodal cell that it hits negative forty millivolts, it opens voltage-gated calcium channels.
2: So, the what the stimulus to open the calcium channels is actually the, just the charge of negative forty. So, yes. once it the doors reach the negative yep. forty, they all just spring open.
1: Spring open, and because most calcium sits outside, calcium starts to enter a nodal cell. As and the yep, oh, just keep going. Okay, as the calcium enters it starts to become really positive, right? Calcium carries... Every single calcium ion carries two positive charges. So it becomes really positive inside up until it's positive 10 millivolts-ish inside the neuron. So or does, inside, sorry, the, the sinoatrial node.
2: So does that, is that the, the charge required for the calcium doors to close? It has That's to be right. about positive 10?
1: About positive 10. But the point here is going from that negative 60 to let some sodium in to then go to negative 40 to let the calcium in to go to positive 10. We've just now changed the inside of this nodal cell from negative to positive. Yeah. And that change is called depolarization. So it started off as polarized and then went to depolarization, which is super important. So it went from negative to positive. Mm. That's important. During this depolarization phase, we've now chucked a bunch of sodium into a nodal cell and a bunch of calcium into the nodal cell. And the thing is that the nodal cells are connected. To the myocardial cells surrounding it, the muscle, the contractile muscle cells. They're connected to that, and there's little open doors, these what's called gap junctions, which means that now the sodium and calcium that's entered the nodal cells can diffuse across to all the surrounding cardiac myocytes.
2: Right. So this is just the syncytium. Yes. So they just joined together by a like the intercalated discs, is that what's holding them together? Yeah,
1: the, the intercalated discs and the desmosomes are sort of like pot rivets that are holding them together, but there's open doors called gap junctions allowing the sodium and calcium to move from myocyte to myocyte or nodal cell to myocyte. And the reason why this is important is because those that sodium and calcium carries a positive charge with it, which then depolarizes the surrounding myocytes. So right? once
2: you move into the myocytes, does then the... The way that the depolarization occurs, does it work differently?
1: Mm-hmm. So it's so not—it's just having a drink. Yes, they work differently because, as you now depolarize a cardiomyocyte, yes, you're going to have sodium influx, similar-ish to what you get in a nodal cell, and you'll also have calcium influx like a nodal cell. But the difference here is that the importance of the calcium influx here for myocytes is that. Once calcium enters a muscle cell, that muscle cell is now allowed to contract. Mm. Calcium is the permission for muscle cells to contract. So while in the nodal cell, calcium influx simply just allows for the depolarization, so the the trigger to stimulate that nodal cell to send a signal to the next one, when the calcium enters the muscle cell, that muscle cell will then subsequently contract. And that's important.
2: And is that coming from the extracellular fluid or is that coming like skeletal muscles like a... A defined organelle?
1: Yes, both. So uh, most of the calcium required for contraction it will be coming from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So it's like the skeletal muscle? Like the skeletal muscle, which has a pool of calcium inside and the influx of the calcium will trigger the opening of the doors for the uh, sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is just a modified smooth endoplasmic reticulum, which releases calcium and that calcium oh, will okay. then tell the... So what you're
2: saying is in the myocyte. Yeah. Even though this, the up, upward phase isn't sodium, once you've depolarized the membrane, calcium will start to enter from the outside, That's right. which then triggers the psychoplasmic reticulum
1: release. That's right, okay. yes. Now, uh, there's a slight, now, this is all depolarization. As you can see in this process, this depolarization, which starts at the SA node mm. and then... It basically translates across to all the surrounding myocytes you can see it happening in a domino like fashion right why when one depolarizes all the rest depolarize and it goes from being negative inside the membrane to positive inside the membrane this electrical charge change that spreads in this case across just the atria to begin with we can measure on an ecg and that's what we're basically picking up we're picking up this ecg change that's happening towards or away from each ECG lead.
2: Okay, and are we going to, for simplicity's sake, just focus on that rhythm lead, lead to? Lead to. Just to make it easier to refer to.
1: That's right. Now, to begin with, the SA node, because I said it spontaneously does this, right? doesn't need extrinsic innovation. It will do this around about 70 to 100 times a minute, just this spontaneous depolarization, And it needs to reset, obviously, each time, which means the sodium and calcium needs to be thrown outside. Mm. And even though we said so much of this positive stuff goes in that it becomes positive 10... When we throw the positive sodium and calcium back outside, we also end up getting potassium moving outside as well, making it negative inside again. And luckily, we have the sodium potassium pump always working, re establishing the sodium potassium membranes. So that's called repolarization when it becomes negative again back inside the myocyte. But the point I'm getting across here is the depolarization and repolarization events either going from negative to positive inside or from positive back to negative inside, that's what the ECG is measuring. It's the charge changes across the membrane. Okay. In the direction of the lead or away from the lead. Yep. Does that make sense? It does. All right. So it obviously is going to begin at the atria depolarization and then it's going to pause because the atrial depolarization cannot spread into the ventricles because of what you spoke about earlier. The uh, There's a cytoskeleton that's present there's this thick fibrous tissue that separates the atria from the ventricles. Mm. And the only uh, connection from the atria to the ventricles is another node called the atrioventricular node. And so, what you get is firstly the depolarization event through the atria, then the subsequent atrial contraction, and then the funneling of the electrical event through the AV node, which takes about 0.1 of a second. And then the AV node will send the depolarization event. Through what we call the bundle of his, yep. and then the bundle branches, yep. and then the Pekinji fibers, and all of these start to spread through the ventricular muscles, causing depolarization of the ventricular muscles, then subsequent contraction of the ventricular muscles. and then the whole heart is now depolarized, so gone from negative to positive. And then we need to reset it. Go from positive to negative again. And we do that by going through that process that we spoke about, where we throw all the potassium outside and we use the sodium, potassium, ATPase pump to reestablish the membrane and it repolarizes from where it finished back to the beginning again.
2: So, a question um, you said with the SA node, it fires at what speed? About 70 to 100 depolarizations a minute. Mm, all right. But the AV node does it significantly less?
1: Yeah, around about 40.
2: So what happens between the two then? So if, so correct me if I'm wrong here. So you have got the the P wave, which correlates to the SA node, yep. and yep. it's sending a signal through the whole atria. The the kind of the PR interval, which is the flat line. Yeah, it is. So there's nothing happening electrically, yep. and that's kind of the point where the AV node is holding onto the stimuli. Mm-hmm. before it fires, which you're going to basically see the Q wave and then the, or the whole QRS complex. Yep. So what's happening to the extra stimuli that's happening from the SA node? So if it's you saying between 70 to 100 yep. and this one's only beating at well, 40. 40 to 60, yep. what's happening to those additional ones?
1: So the way I ex- explain it, and again it might be an oversimplification, is that if you picture the heart and you picture the SA node and the AV node, And you picture the AV node firing off, you know, 40 times a minute. So it's quite slow. And then you picture the SA node firing off 70 times a minute. As the signal from the SA node travels through the atria to reach the AV, it will then trigger the AV to depolarize. So that means that because the SA node's firing off faster than the AV, the AV node tends to be reliant on the SA node. Okay. If the SA node doesn't work and there's no conduction through the atria the AV node will then be reliant upon itself and will spontaneously fire 40 times a minute. Yeah. Which is its way of trying its hardest to keep the heart going, but you'd likely need a medical intervention because 40 times a minute of depolarization, unless you're an athlete, is probably not the best.
2: Yep, sure. So this is like a first-degree block or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And that AV firing is sort of like a backup.
2: Okay, and so... Does that make sense? It does. Yep. But if it because it's stimulating it more frequently than it can actually do itself, yeah. Does that mean just the additional ones it just ignores?
1: Yeah, because because there's always a refractory period, okay, right? So, always- so once it's depolarized, because it's that depolarization signal has been triggered ultimately from the, a, uh, the SA node, it has to uh, it has a refractory period, which is very important for cardiomyocytes. That refractory period means that there's a time period where it can't depolarize again. And that's important because if a um, my, muscle cell or myocyte can depolarize again too quickly, it results in tetany, right? Yeah, sure. So you have yeah, a tetanic yeah. contraction. And, and, and myocytes, cardiomyocytes cannot have tetanic contractions So because of this refractory period. So that's why.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. And would you say that the nodal, well, not the nodal, the, the conductive system within the ventricles may be more efficient to get... A quicker, more complete depolarization than the atria would.
1: Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So the, once the SA node fires off, it's simply spreading. It, well, there's going to be conductile fibers, but most of the depolarization is spread through myocytes, yeah. right? Which tends to be slower. Uh, when you go from the AV node, it goes through a bundle branch. Uh, Uh, well, it goes through the bundle of his and then it splits into left and right bundle branches which then go to Purkinje fibres. These are crazy fast and they fire specific signals to dedicated aspects of either either the septum or the left and right ventricular muscle. It's a lot faster.
2: Because it's relying on this um, conductive system so it's almost a little bit more neurological than just purely myocardial, like the atria.
1: because we need the ventricles to contract. If you think about the atria... Like you said earlier, by the time the atria contract, it's there just to get that last 10% of blood down to the ventricles. It's not yeah, crazy yeah, it's 10%. Know. And but but the ventricles need to do it, do together, it pretty good. Yeah, That's right because it's going to be inefficient. Yes.
2: So if you were to look at the P wave okay. in, in a way, you could break it in two parts. Well, we said what the P wave represents. Oh, maybe not.
1: So if if you've got the, uh, so the lead, lead, two, lead, two, lead 2 looking at the heart from the apex. Yeah. When the SA node fires off and sends its depolarization event through the atrial muscle, the uh, the average vector or the angle in which the depolarization event occurs in is in the direction of lead two. Right. And when you get depolarization happening in the direction of a lead, you get a bump up on the ECG. So it's
2: just like a little hill.
1: Yes. So that first hill, that first bump up, is called the P wave. Yep. And it's representative of atrial depolarization.
2: Yeah. But. It- so that's electrically what's happening, but mechanically what's happening in the heart with that P wave yep. is atrial contraction or uh, atrial systole. Immediately,
1: uh, uh, not simultaneously. No, that's right. A fraction of a second. Oh, well, yeah, a fraction yeah. of a second after it begins. And
2: because um, it's happening in the SA node, which is more like. Close to the superior vena cava, sorry, yes, close to the superior vena cava inlet into the right atrium, Mm -hmm. you're going to get right atrial contraction before you get left atrial contraction. So, in that kind of P wave, if you were to break the heel in half, probably the right side of the atria is contracting a little bit before the left.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Which
2: gives you, which then because you have that kind of PR interval, which is a flat line, it gives the the atria a, a capacity to completely contract get rid of its blood exactly because, like you said, it's less efficient in its depolarization than the ventricle is.
1: Yes. So it takes – so the P wave, you'll see, like you said, it's like a little hill. It goes for, a, you know, a, a, I can't remember exactly the length of time that it goes for, but it goes for a certain period of time and it's like a little bump and, like you said, pr- pretty much halfway 100 through. 100 milliseconds. The, 100 milliseconds, great. Well, that's
2: the atrial systole phase.
1: Okay, so it's the whole contraction phase, not just the P wave. But halfway through the P wave is probably when uh, atrial systole begins. And like you said, that's probably right atrial systole, but left atrial systole will happen a fraction of a second after that. And like you said, once that whole atria is depolarized, because of that fibrous tissue where the electrical signal can't move through towards the ventricles, The electrical, this depolarization event now funnels through the AV node and it lasts about 0.1 of a second and that's that flat line from the P wave to the next point. Now the next point, which is the Q wave, is actually a negative depression Mm. and it's short and sharp. And what this is representative of is as the AV node sends a signal into the bundle of his and then the left and right bundle branches, the left and right bundle branches will send the depolarization event through the septum. Away from the lead, so you get this because it's the septum's not very thick, oh. short and sharp, and because the 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 bundle branches are fast signals, it looks like a sharp peak, but it's not a big peak because it's not much tissue. Yeah. Does that make sense? Be- you wouldn't imagine it's almost neurological opposed to muscle right yeah i wouldn't say there's much contraction happening no. at the at the septum there so that's that uh, q wave the negative depression but then you get this huge r wave right and this huge r wave is representative of the signal being sent through the pekinji fibers and then sending the depolarization event through the ventricular myocardium both the left and the right and if you have a look at the average vector or the angle in which the depolarization event is happening It's towards the lead for the left ventricle and away from the lead for the right. And then the question is, well, then are you going to get an upward deflection or a downward? And the answer is upward significantly because the left ventricular wall is is four times thicker than the right. So it overwhelms whatever's happening on the right-hand side. And so that's that big peak. Then as it goes down, you get a final uh, uh, little groove dip in the ECG, P, Q, R, which is the S wave, and this is the depolarization event of the very ends or the upper portion of the ventricles, ventricles. which is away from the lead. So you get a tiny little depression. And so the, uh, the Q, R and S waves are all representative of ventricular depolarization. Um, and then finally, the whole heart's depolarized. We need to reset it, which or is... Whole,
2: ventric- whole ventricle.
1: Oh, sorry, you're right. All the ventricles depolarized. So the depolar-
2: so question would be there. Oh, yeah. No, actually, keep going because okay. I'll
1: come back to this. All right. So we now need to repolarize the ventricles. So make it negative again, and where it finish, finish depolarization is where it begins repolarization, and mm. just goes in the opposite direction. And the net or average vector for that is away from the lead. And so when you get repolarization happening away from the lead, you get a bump up on right. the ECG, and that's so called the T wave because okay. it's doing the opposite. That's called the T wave.
2: All right. So that's the ventricles repolarizing, ready for another. Cardiac cycle. That's right. Why aren't you seeing an atrial repolarization wave?
1: Great question. Because it's going to happen during ventricular depolarization. And because the ventricles are big, thick tissue, uh, it's overwhelming any atrial repolarization. And in all honesty, atrial repolarization clinically probably isn't that important compared to ventricular depolarization yes, anyway. Yes, yes. Right? Okay. Does that make sense? It does. So if we were then to take the this ECG, again, one cardiac cycle, one heartbeat, you've got a P wave, which is atrial depolarization, QRS complex, which is ventricular depolarization, and T wave, which is ventricular repolarization, the question is where does it sit on our cardiac cycle yeah. compared to what's happening mechanically in the heart? Yeah. And so the, the the way I look at it, which is a bit of a cheat, is that if you were to draw a line down the middle of each of the peaks, that gives you a good indication as to when something's going to start happening. Okay. Uh, so think about this. Ventricular filling, the first phase that we spoke about, it's passive. There's no contraction. There's no electrical event happening. So this is going to happen at the, f- the flat line before the P wave yep. and goes up to the midline of the P wave.
2: So after the T wave... After the stu- the T just wave? before the start of the P wave.
1: Or right to the middle of the P wave. Okay. Because remember, yeah, yeah, it's not... contraction doesn't happen for a fraction okay. of a second after the electrical event. Right.
2: So this would be diastole?
1: Yep. Ventricular diastole. And this
2: is passive filling. So this sometimes will be referred to as the rapid ventricular filling and then the slower reduced ventricular filling. Yeah. Which is the passive diastole of the ventricles. then you move to the atrial contraction or atrial systole. That's right. Which is now coming about in the mid-portion of the P wave.
1: Yes, so remember it's going to happen because the whole point of atrial um, depolarization is to cause atrial contraction a fraction of a second later. So yes, so that line that you drew midway through the P wave, that's signifying the beginning of atrial systole. And that will go all the way to the midline of the QRS complex, so the peak of the R wave, Right. Now, at this peak, this is when isovolumetric contraction will also begin. So this is ventricular contraction. So this is the
2: peak of the R?
1: This is the peak of the R, okay. yep, the biggest wave on the ECG. This is when isovolumetric contraction begins or so occurs. this is
2: So this is where everything's closed, the ventricles are, are, are begin to contract.
1: Yep. Right. And, and this, with the next uh, uh, phase, which is ventricular ejection, because both are ventricular contraction, both of those... Together, go all the way up to the midline of the T wave. Yep. And
2: again, with the as we saw with the diastole, the because you've put it into one um, in the the Wiggers diagram, yeah. the, the ventricular ejection will be broken into two: a fast yeah. phase and a. So it's also a bit like the opposite. You know how I did the the plunger yeah. or the syringe with your finger on it. Yeah, the it's same it. Now. now you're pushing it. So if you put your finger on the end of a syringe. You push the plunger up. so It's
1: isovolumetric contraction.
2: That's right. You let your finger go. And that's ventricular ejection. But the front end of that is going to be much more rapid than the back end of it. Yep. If you were to break it into half, let's say, by time. Yeah. The front end of that, because there's so much more pressure behind it, so the amount of blood leaving at the front end, as soon as the semilunar is open, Mm. it's going to come out really quick, and that's the uptick of the volume leaving the... Um, the ventricles, and also the volume entering the aorta or the the pulmonary trunk.
1: Perfect. Uh, And then from the midline of the T-wave, after that, we go back to that isovolumetric relaxation and filling point, right? Because, again, it's passive, nothing's happening in regards to electrically and mechanically. Uh, Blood is trying to start to fill, and so that's halfway from the T-wave all the way again into ventricular filling. Easy. Yeah. Now, I think we need to finish off with the pressures and the pressure changes that occur, don't you think? Sure. We, sh- we yep. should have a quick look at when does like the atrial pressures... Uh, it, it makes total sense though. After everything we've said, right, you're going to get peaks and troughs of pressure changes. Um, and so I think it probably makes a lot of sense that if you were to look at atrial systole that this is when the pressure within the atria... Is the highest. ...is the highest. Yeah. Right, And then when you look at um, the uh,
2: ventricles, the, the only other addition you could make with the atria contraction, so the atria are contracting, so they're push, trying to push the blood down into the ventricles. Yep. Um, just as they're first contracting, mm-hmm. they're, before the blood's leaving in mass, the pressure will go up, but yep. then the volume will start to drop down. Yeah. But the other time that the pressure in the atria might... Increase a little bit yep. is going to be, and I think this is called the C wave in the atria. Yeah, um,
1: it's not an electrical wave, though. No, it's like, not.
2: It's yeah. not electrical. So, one of the ways they can kind of determine the the pressure within the atria yep. is to look at the pressure within your jugular vein because right. there's no valve that's separating. Um, oh, essentially, the you're into the atria. That's right. Your super, superior vena cava from your atria, right atria. Yeah.
1: So if your atrial pressure is higher, it's going to back up into the jugular.
2: Which it does in conditions like right heart failure, right? And you can see a a column of blood going up into the the jugular vein. Yeah. Now, so whatever the atria is doing from a pressure standpoint, you may be able to see it in the jugular venous pressure.
1: So what's this C wave representative of? So this is a this slight is, tick this, up.
2: this is the ventricular contraction. Oh, because so C for contraction makes sense. So as you're contracting the yep. ventricles,
1: and the, you close the AV valve, it's closed. The,
2: the valves pressure. actually push back up into the atria. Yes,
1: that makes sense.
2: And so that's but actually decreasing the volume, volume, increasing yeah, yeah. The pressure. So you'll see up, up upward tick there. That's called the C.
1: And the ventricular pressure, obviously, at the isovolumetric contraction point is when it starts to really just boost up, right? Because that's what you said. That's got your finger on the end of that plunger and you're pushing against it. So it starts to just shoot up.
2: But if you look at the ventricular volume, it's pretty much flatline.
1: That's right. Until you take your finger off and you've got ventricular ejection and then that pressure will peak and then start to plummet again. So this
2: is where the upstream pressure outweighs the downstream. So this is where the ventricle... Is greater than the other side, so That's right. if it's a left ventricle, the left ventricle pressure is higher than the aorta. Yep. Or if it's the right, the right ventricle pressure is higher than the pulmonary trunk. That's right. And so it overcomes that now, so then the semilunar is open, and so this is now moving you to the first phase of ejection, which again sometimes they'll call this rapid ejection. Because yep. this is the fastest, and here you'll see a big shoot up, and this is kind of where the pressure. Kind of in the aorta matches that in the in the ventricles. Yeah. yeah, that kind of dome-like shape. If you're looking at that diagram, perfect. But then the volume, as you would expect, is inverse to that because yes. you're losing ventricular volume very and rapidly. The pressure drops, so it's now dropping down. Yeah, perfect. So that's going to continue along through the ejection until it gets to the point where the ventricles are going to start to relax. So this is isovolumetric. Relaxation. Yep. And as you're siphoning blood back into the ventricle, it's going to want to draw blood from downstream back into upstream. Yeah. Right? Which is something you don't want to do. Yeah. So this is where those semilunar cups catch the blood yeah. and closes them off. So this is where you'd see semilunar closure. And this is where you would hear the second heart sound because the semilunars are now closed. For at that. Is that- and, th- and this is now when you're moving into the phase of the most efficient period of filling the coronary circuit.
1: Yes. Well, we haven't spoken anything. Else no, yet. no. And you've just opened another door <laughs> to talk about. Well, coronary. literally a door.
2: Yeah, so the, the yes. The doors for the um, coronary
1: valves. Uh, okay. Is there anything else within the cardiac cycle? So that's w- one heartbeat. So it took us one and a half hours to talk about everything. Oh, how long. everything that happens in a single heartbeat. Uh, but I think it's all important. And what we're going to have up on the screen of the uh, YouTube video is we're going to have the entire cardiac cycle there. And I might be able to put it in the notes for the podcast too, if I remember.
2: So, with the sounds, we've spoken about the sounds, spoke S1 and S2. The, 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 the there the anything I'll just say with the sounds, if there is problems with the doors uh, outside just S1 and S2, remember S3 and S4 is more to do with problems with the ventricle. So usually um, one of them is to do with the, the ventricles are not compliant or the other one is the ventricle is already got blood in it and it's kind of going why are you filling me up a- mm. more but if you have any other problems this would now move into what we call murmurs where you have any other problems with the doors they're like um, partly open and you're trying to get blood through it mm. it's going to be stenotic yeah. and you're going to hear resistance or if the doors become floppy
1: so a murmur is simply uh, an inappropriate heart sound right that's right
2: yeah but in most cases something to do w- with the valve not working as it should either it's partly open stenotic or it's just becoming incompetent, and or incontinent <laughs> and it's just leaky
1: or a like a patent foramen ovale, yeah. In like a, the the little hole, or, or septal defect, yeah. Receptal defect, yeah. All right, I think we did a pretty good job there. It's a it's difficult a, episode to do as via a podcast audio, uh, so I do recommend you have a textbook in front of you or an image that you can refer to. Wiggies. Um, uh, wiggers, yeah, wiggers. Uh, Yeah, so there we go. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you want to contact us, you can. Uh, Matt and I will be doing – every month we're going to be doing a listener mailbag uh, where you send us – I thought you didn't like mailbag. Uh, What did I call it? I call it mailbag mailbag and you call it listener Listener mail. mail. I think I've said mailbag so many times now that I just call it mailbag. Do listener mail. Uh, You can send us an email. Uh, through gubiosciences at gmail.com or go to our website, dr. drmike.com.au. Send us an email, ask us a question, we will try and answer it. Again, it's not medical advice, but it's about taking concepts and trying to explain them so that they make sense. So uh, send us a, an email. Otherwise, you can just send us an email and say, hi, thanks for the podcast, or, you know, get rid of Matt. He's wasting time and energy. He's not that great to look at either. And he stinks. I just assume that because I can see, like, the smell lines that you'd see in a cartoon above his head on the YouTube video. So, uh, Matthew, thank you. Listener, thank you. And uh, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.